Well, it's great to be with you all. I'll tell you what, that was a highlight so far, just hearing all your voices lifted to God. It's great to be here. I'm excited to open uh, our word, the Word tonight and to explore the Book of Ruth with you. So if you go ahead and turn your packets to page 17, we're going to dive in to one of my favorite scriptures of all time. Well, they had sat in darkness for two weeks, complete and utter darkness. And over the passing days, it became clear to them that this cave was going to be their tomb. They were waiting for death to come. What had started out two weeks earlier as just a fun thing to do after a soccer match, they had explored a cave, but it only turned into disaster. Unexpectedly, a monsoon hit, and floodwaters trapped them two and a half miles below the ground. And so they sat there. Hope was lost. Death was coming. So you can imagine what it was like when all of a sudden, through the murky water, a light began to appear. And then, perhaps even more shocking, the head of Rick Stanton popped up out of the water. Rick is an expert underwater cave diver, and he had swam the two and a half miles to find these boys trapped. Hope had come. Yes, they were still trapped. Yes, they had to still traverse their way out. Not everything was fixed, but hope had arrived, and the whole tenor and tone of that cave had changed. Friends, the same is true for us tonight. And much like those Thai boys, when they first caught that glimpse of light shining through the darkness, tonight as we continue our story in Ruth, we're going to catch a glimpse of the Redeemer, the Savior, the key figure who changes everything, who turns around the fortunes of Ruth and Naomi. The appearance of Boaz changes everything. Remember, Naomi, the pleasant one, has said, my name really should be bitter. But we're going to see her rejoice again. Ruth has lost family, left family, and has now risked it all to follow Yahweh. And now she's going to see Yahweh provide. Hope arrives. So here's where we're headed. I'm going to give you kind of the layout of where we are headed tonight. What we're going to do is we're going to dip back a little bit into what Dave covered this morning, and we're going to look at chapter two, and in that first section, we're going to see that it's all about seeing the Redeemer. We're going to catch a glimpse of Boaz and his character, and hope is going to build. So that's the first section, and then the second section we're going to look at tonight is chapter three, and this is all about our response to the Redeemer. We're going to see Ruth and Naomi risk it all because they have found the right redeemer. So that's where we're headed. You guys ready to lean in with me? That was a question. You guys ready to lean in? All right. There we go. All right. We're going to dive into seeing the redeemer. Now, this is true about any story. Every story has a wonderful turning point, right? It's the chance meeting on a busy city street in every rom-com, right? It's the halftime speech that turns the tide in every sporting movie. And as Dave so elegantly laid out this morning, the turning point of the book of Ruth is when Boaz is introduced on the scene right there at the beginning of chapter two, and Ruth happens to come to his field. Everything hinges in the story on this moment. It's when the tide turns, it's when hope appears, and it's the moment we see the Redeemer. And I'll be honest, it's the moment that one of my most favorite characters in all of the scriptures show up, Boaz. Can I just say for the record, we're going to see tonight, Boaz is the man. And you might sense that I'm crushing on him, and you're reading it correctly, all right? <laughs> this guy is awesome. All right. And what we need to see here is the tide and how it turns, because Remember, prior to this moment in the story, it's been a downward spiral of despair, right? It started with famine, and then it progressed to death, 
And then it ended in despair and hopelessness as Naomi forfeits her name pleasant and instead requests to be called bitter. But what I want you to do is look on your outline down in chapter 2, verse 20. And I want you to notice the tone shift that Naomi has. And she declares this, talking about Boaz, may he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. She earlier said that the Lord had forgotten her. And now we see he's, she's saying he's bringing kindness and he has not forsaken. We have to ask the question, what got her here? What, what changed her tone and her tune? Well, as I've already said, it's the arrival of Boaz. But then that begs the question, well, what's so significant about Boaz? How is he such a game changer? Well, first, we need to understand the formal role that Boaz played to Ruth and Naomi in Israelite culture. It's, it's wrapped up in this term, redeemer. So look down at verse two, or sorry, chapter two, verse 20. Here we see, again, Naomi talking about Boaz says this. This man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. What does she mean when she says, this is a redeemer? Well, Israelite law recorded in Deuteronomy chapter 25 tells us what is meant by a redeemer. Listen to what it has to say. It says this, if brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And the first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. Now, this is a bit strange to us, but the goal of this law was to protect the wife from being disinherited in this patriarchal society. When the brother came in, it would allow her to have a son and then to be able to possess the land that was then inherited and passed on to him. And what we see is that Boaz fills this role. He is one of the men who can be this type of redeemer for Ruth who had lost her husband. And they need him in order to do that. So, what is it, going back to this question, about Boaz that turns the tide, that makes them start to praise the Lord and have hope? Well, one thing is there is actually a literal redeemer, someone who can fulfill this role. But I have to admit, it's surely more than the fact that Boaz was a man and had a Y chromosome, all right? There is more going on here. He is much more than that. And that's what I wanna look at next I want us to see what was so compelling about this man, Boaz. Who was he and what was significant about him? So the first thing we see is that Boaz, the redeemer, is strong. He is a man of strength and he's a man of privilege. We get this first hint in actually the name Boaz. In Hebrew, Boaz means in strength. Now, there's a name. If I had a son, yeah, all right. We might be going in that direction. It's much like today if you name a boy Rock or Hunter, right? It's got that, mm. I think there's actually a hunter in the crowd. Shout out to you. But Boaz's name points to his strength. But look down at verse one of chapter two as well. It tells us that he is a worthy man. The Hebrew word here, worthy man, captures the sense of him having honor and worth and importance in the community. He had clout with his clan, all right? I want you to think like a notable figure, like a, a mayor or a prominent businessman. But then look, as we continue to read on, in verse three, we learned he's a landowner. He's got some cash. Verse five tells us that he had numerous young men in his employ. He's a wealthy businessman. Verse six talks about a servant who was over his reapers. 
He's got middle management, right? He's got his own Michael Scott ready to go. <laughs> this is quite the operation that he has going. And if we were to flip a few pages and kind of read ahead, we'd also see that Boaz conducts his business at the city gate, which means he's an elder in this city. So if we put it all together, we get the fact that he's a wealthy, established, older male, a business owner with leadership position. In short, Boaz is privileged. He is a man of strength. Now, as an aside, can I just affirm for a moment that being male and being privileged isn't inherently a mark against you. Nor is any manner of privilege from wealth to education. It's all a matter of what we choose to do with that privilege. And in fact, that's what we see next as we're going to unpack the next three points about Boaz. This man is unique and uses his privilege in amazing ways. So the next point that I want you to see is that the Redeemer is godly. Not only is he a man of strength, he is a man of God. And you got to love the way that the narrator paints the picture of Boaz. Because the very first word that we hear on the mouth of Boaz is the name of the Lord. Look down at verse 4. Boaz is coming into the field and he says to his reapers, the Lord be with you. And they answered, the Lord bless you. We're meant to tie in our minds that Boaz is a man of God. And Dave laid out how extraordinary of a fact that would be given the religious climate of the day. But you might just say, well, that's, ah, come on. That's like the standard greeting. Is that really his heart? Is this really a relationship that is deep and abiding? Look down in chapter two, verses 11 and 12. I'll read them again. I think we see a different picture of a man who deeply knew the Lord. It says this, but Boaz, talking to Ruth, answered her, all that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me, and how you left your father and your mother and your native land and came to a people that did not know you before. And then he says this, the Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. See, Boaz here prays to the Lord to repay Ruth according to her deeds. But he, in that prayer, knows the character and the heart of the Lord as one who brings the wing over, who provides protection and refuge. He knows this because he himself knows the Lord. He is a man of God. He's strong, he's godly, but he's also a protector. The Redeemer is a protector. I want you to notice here what Boaz does for Ruth by way of protection. Look at verses eight and nine with me. It says this, then Boaz said to Ruth, now listen, my daughter, do not go glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. First, you notice he instructs her to stay close to his young women. The other young women would not harm her. Instead, they would look out for her. And you got to remember, she's also a foreigner, and here he is providing her with a group of friends and a community. He's looking out for her social needs. Next, though, he goes out of his way to instruct his young men not to touch her. He is concerned here for her physical and sexual safety. Now, I've got to admit, this feels like the classic shotgun moment, right? The young guys are around, Boaz is cleaning the shotgun, and he's telling the young men, look, you touch her, you're going to be on the business end of this thing, all right? <laughs> he's looking out and protecting her. And finally, if you notice, he protects her health. 
Israel, it's a hot and arid land. And here he provides water for her that she doesn't have to go and draw herself from the well. This protects her from being at a potentially unwelcoming place where the community would gather to get water. The Redeemer is a protector. But lastly, let's look at how the Redeemer is generous. We're going to see Boaz practicing generous hospitality here. And what I'd like to do is to finish out so that we actually get to hear all the texts of Ruth. We're going to start in verse 14 where Dave left off, and we're going to read through the end of chapter 2 together to see this point. So follow along with me. This is a beautiful story. It says this, And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, Come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers, and he passed, her, passed to her roasted grain. And she ate until she was satisfied, and she had some left over. When she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves, and do not reproach her. And also, pull out some from the bundles for her, and leave it for her to glean, and do not rebuke her. So she gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. And she took it up and went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, where where did you glean today? And where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, the man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, may he be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. And Naomi also said to her, this man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And Ruth, the Moabite said, besides, he said to me, you shall keep close to my young men until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvest, and she lived with her mother-in-law. Here's what I want you to notice. First, the hospitality. Did you notice that Boaz opens up his table to this foreign woman? And this is way more than just feeding her. He's welcoming her into the community. And it's the same today, right? When we invite someone over, it's not just to shove Pringles in their face. It's so that we can have a relation. If you do that, by the way, that's awkward. (laughs) I recommend things better than Pringles. But it's for a relationship. It's so that they can be a part of our sphere and our world. Boaz is doing that here. But second, it's not just hospitality. Notice the generosity, right? She has more than enough for the meal. She's got to get the doggy and the to-go bag together, all right? He is lavishing on her. And even more than that, he's telling her that she can glean always in his fields. And he gives a little side hint to the reapers. He's like, the requirement that God gave was just that if grain accidentally fell while they were harvesting, they couldn't pick it back up because that was for the poor to come and eat. But Boaz says, I want you to like make a little extra waste. I want you to kind of make it easy for her. This, friends, is radical generosity. I love this man. I'll tell you, isn't Boaz a compelling picture? I mean, what a man, a man of strength who loves the Lord, who protects and provides for those around him. Couldn't you say that we need more folks like him. We need to see an army of Boazes. This is what should be done with privilege and power, to be spent on others rather than spent on yourself. I want to ask you, do you see what I see here in this room tonight? I don't know if you realize this, but almost all of you are people of strength, 
and people of privilege. Many of you come from a place of generational wealth. Your parents own homes. They own businesses. They own vacation homes and second homes. You have an immense amount of wealth sitting behind you. All of you, I think all of you, are in higher education, right? You guys are all in college. You're going to get high-paying jobs. Many of you are young and strong and athletic. You can run faster and move more than most people. And I hope that all of you have a relationship with the Lord and that he has blessed you richly with his love and his grace. Do you realize tonight that you are a rich and powerful group of people? The question is, what are you doing with all of this wealth and privilege that God has granted you? Are you spending it on yourselves, finding the latest toy, promoting your career, or are you like Boaz, having an eye for the weak and using it to redeem others? Friends, I'm gonna be straight with you. I need you as men and women in Christ to offer your strength to serve others. I need you to lay down your privilege in order to protect and to be generous. So here's my challenge for you. If you have physical strength, use that strength to care and to protect the weak. Find the elderly person in your church or community who needs jobs done around the house and help them out. Find the single mothers at your church and lift a load, fix a light bulb, and if you can learn some other skills and trades like electricity, man, you will be all the more useful. For those of you who have wealth, and yes, I hear you're like, I'm a poor college student. Mm, you have wealth. <laughs> Give generously. Practice hospitality. Invite people in. I mean, goodness gracious, a lot of you have meal plans that you can just invite everybody. Just bring them in, serve food, enjoy it. More particularly, I invite you to find the weak and the poor, the needy and the unprotected in your community and serve them. I want to give a shout out to Sarah Evans. Earlier this week, I got a text from her saying, hey, we have a group of Afghan immigrants that we are caring for. Do you have any food that you could bring? This is the kind of thing that we need the church and the body to be involved in. When you have privilege and wealth, use it to further bless and encourage everyone around you. This is what we do with privilege and power. Now, remember the turning point. It was the beginning of the barley harvest, and there was a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech whose name was Boaz. Hope is here. Hope has arrived. Friends, we have seen the Redeemer. Once we have seen the Redeemer, though, what is our response going to be? That's where we're headed next, responding to the Redeemer. I've heard it said once, once you've found the right Redeemer, you risk it all. Let me say that again. Once you have found the right Redeemer, you risk it all. This was certainly true for 70 enslaved people on the eastern shore of Maryland when they met Harriet Tubman. Understandably, these people were hesitant to leave their masters as they faced the risk of death and beatings and capture, not to mention the harsh weather and risks of the travel and the journey to freedom. But as risky as it was when you've met the right savior, like Harriet Tubman, they were willing to risk it all. Why? Man, this woman had the right combination of skills. She was tough and she was smart. She knew 
and mastered subterfuge. She could craft a lie to get her way through for good effect. And this is what impresses me. She was skilled in backwoods knowledge, and she was effective with firearms. Yeah. (laughs) And to top it all off, she was only five foot five. She had it all. She was the right savior for them, and they risked it all, and they were rewarded with their freedom. We see the same pattern here in the story of Ruth as we round the corner into chapter 3. What we're going to see here is we've met Boaz in chapter 2, and now Ruth and Naomi are going to take great risks because they have met the right Redeemer. So let's lean in and find out the risks that they took. This is a great passage. Buckle up. Here we go. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, anoint yourself and put on your cloak and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies, then go, uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you, what to do. And she replied, all that you say, I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of a heap of grain. Then she came softly, uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over. Behold, a woman lay at his feet. Some of you guys are, anyway, we'll move on. (laughs) He said, who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And he said, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, and that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear I will do for you all that you ask. For all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true that I am a redeemer. Yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight and in the morning. If he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. So she lay at his feet until the morning but arose before one could recognize another. And he said, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, bring the garment you are wearing and hold it out. So she held it out and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. Then she went into the city. And when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, how did you fare, my daughter? Then she told her all that the man had done to her, saying, these six measures of barley he gave to me, And he said to me, you must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. She replied, wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out. For the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. Man, now that is a great story. We're going to look at how both of these women risk in order to come under their Savior. So first, risking hope. All right, can I just be straight? I mean, this chapter lays out a rather risky and audacious plan. I want all of you women to imagine this conversation with your mother. You've just said, I met this really nice guy. You're sitting down at Starbucks over coffee. She says, all right, I've got the plan. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to like get dressed up, get that nice perfume going, I want you to tonight, after he's asleep, sneak into his room. (laughs) I want you to pull the covers back. I want you to lay down at his feet and then wait till he wakes up and he'll tell you what to do. (laughs) I can't imagine that happening anywhere. But what I want you to realize, get a load of this. We have to remember 
who is the author of this plan? It's Naomi. She is taking a radical risk. This woman who earlier had said that her life was bitter. But I want to just step back for a moment. Do you see how much she is risking in this moment? What if Boaz rejects Ruth and then publicizes these actions? This would put Naomi and Ruth in the outcast category all the more, making it even harder for them to find that husband, that redeemer. What if on the way out, Ruth is harmed on the way and Naomi's source of joy, the one who is with her, is gone? Or what if Boaz just simply says no and their hopes of redemption are dashed? Have you ever realized sometimes it's easier to live with the possibility of hope rather than the definition of it? You know, it's the reason that guys don't ask the girl out, right? They'd rather have the possibility of a yes than actually to find out whether she would say yes or no and then have to perhaps deal with the firm no. Do you see that Naomi is taking a risk there? Now, if this plan works, she has a lot to gain. It could secure her a future and uh, a family and protection and an inheritance, but it could also backfire and she might lose it all. She might even end up more bitter than when she started. So what makes her confident to do such a crazy and audacious plan? Why does she take the risk? It's because she has seen the Redeemer, and she knows who this man is. Take a look with me at verse 4 of chapter 3. I want you to notice how Naomi ends her instructions to Ruth. Do you notice she ends with this line, and he will tell you what to do. There's a lot captured in that sentence, but it's rooted in Boaz's character. She knows from all that has happened so far that this is a good man. This is a man who protects. This is a man who provides. This is a man of action. He's going to do something, and he's going to do something good. Once you have found the right redeemer, you risk it all. So that is risking hope. Now let's look and turn to Ruth as we look at risking harm. It's not just Naomi who is risking here. We see Ruth herself risking much. At level one, she is risking a lot of personal harm in this moment. Let me set the cultural context for you. Threshing floors are outside the city. Cities in those days were structures with huge walls around because everything outside was dangerous. We needed three feet of stone to protect everything that was going on. And Ruth is headed outside the bounds of this protection, and she's traveling at night when people are often up to no good. Little uh, personal insight here and weakness. I go hunting. One of the things that that means is I head out into the woods at night in the dark. And I'm wearing a massively bright headlight And I'm armed. And yet I'm still scared, crazy, walking through the woods, not knowing what is going to come. I can only imagine what it was like for Ruth to head out into the darkness. On top of that, threshing floors at that time were known to be the place for sexual encounters. It was sort of the modern day truck stop or the Super Bowl. Prostitutes would visit these places, and here's why. Men were outside the city experiencing the height of the harvest. They're alone, away from their families. This puts men, or or this would put other people at risk, or sorry, I'm sorry, it would put Ruth at risk as she came. This is incredibly risky. But I want you to see it's not just the physical risk that Ruth is dealing with. She's taking a social risk here as well. She's a foreign woman. We remember this. 
But the other thing that we haven't really captured in our story is that Ruth has been married for 10 years prior and has never had a child. There's likely the label of barren over her. Who would want her if she couldn't provide a son? So here she is, risking her reputation, perhaps being counted among the prostitutes for visiting a threshing floor if she is seen. This could imperil her name and her future options. So just like Naomi, we have to ask, what would compel her to take this risk? Friends, once you have found the right redeemer, you risk it all. She knows Boaz. She's gotten to see his character. She knows that he loves the Lord. He has protected her and provided for her so far. Why would it be any different now? But I also want you to see it's not just Boaz himself. Her hope is ultimately in the Lord. Do you remember back in chapter 2 when Boaz declares something about Ruth? He says that you have come to seek refuge under the wings of Yahweh. It's this image of coming under the wing. Do you see now that she asks for Boaz to cover her with a wing? Look at chapter 3, verse 9. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. The same language is meant to draw the connection that when she is coming to Boaz for protection, it's the same as coming to the Lord. Or said another way, she is coming to Boaz because she knows that the Lord is the one who can ultimately provide and protect. And so once you know the Lord, and once you've found the right Redeemer, you risk it all to come under them. And so, again, it begs the question, are you tonight taking risks to come towards the Redeemer? Are you taking risks to come towards redemption? Friends, first and foremost, we need to take risks towards the Lord and towards his redemption. This is kind of the whole movement of the story of Ruth and Naomi. We have Ruth, who was an outsider, who chooses to say that I will come under the Lord. I will trust that he will provide. She risks leaving her home, her family. She risks her reputation and all of these things. And I just want to say, perhaps some of you have come here tonight, and in some ways, you've been an outsider with the Lord. Coming here, you wouldn't have said that you know him or trust in him. Perhaps you've been curious. Perhaps you've been trying to figure things out. And as you're here this weekend, you're hearing and seeing the Jesus and the Lord that is presented in the scriptures, and you're recognizing, like Ruth did with Boaz, that this is a good God, a God who protects and who provides. But it feels risky to take that step to come under the shadow of his wings. Can I just invite you to look at how the Lord met Ruth and Naomi? They took a risk and they were not disappointed. Neither will you. Under the shadow of his wings. If this reality is true, that it's worth taking a risk to come under the protection of the Lord, it's also true for those who represent him. This is what we've been seeing as Ruth comes to Boaz, but she's ultimately trusting in the Lord. The same, I believe, can be true for us. There are redeemers, if you will, people who can help us in life. But it often means that we need to take a risk to come to them and under them. And so I would invite you to take a cue from, again, Ruth and Naomi and take the risk to come under those who can help and protect. Part of the interesting place and part of my job is that I get to interact with a lot of different people. And thankfully, I get to hear a lot of different people's lives stories. And sadly, it's not uncommon for me to hear very difficult things. People who are facing the death of a loved one. 
people who are facing addictions, people who have abusive parents, all sorts of tragedy and hardships that people are dealing with. And often, people need help to work through the trauma and the things that they have experienced. They need counseling. They need help, but you're afraid because there's a risk. There's money involved. If I pay all this money and it doesn't help, I'll have lost. There's reputation to risk. Will people look down on me if I need to go see a counselor? What if I go and I spend all this time and it doesn't help and in fact it just stirs up memories of the problem? Friends, I would invite you to take a risk to come under those who can help. Or I'm going to go here. We're going to talk about marriage. It is Ruth after all, all right? Some of you women someday will perhaps come across a godly man a protector, a provider, someone who will help you flourish in Christ. But don't be surprised if he's a little clueless or a little preoccupied and is not really catching the hint, all right? In the vein of Ruth, feel free to be a bit more forward. Now, for the record, I am not recommending Naomi's plan, okay? Let's just... (laughs) If you have questions about how that all works, come talk to me later. But that's not what I'm (laughs) recommending. But feel free to take a risk or two. Gentlemen, perhaps in a few years, you will find the right woman. A woman like Ruth, godly, loyal, faithful. Someone who can encourage and exhort you to be like Christ. It's going to be a risk. So I invite you to get off your couch, turn off your computer game, and open your mouth and take a risk and see where it goes. Now, I've opened up a can of worms, so I'm going to stop right there. (laughs) And we're going to end with this. Once you have found the right redeemer, you risk it all. And remember, that's mostly the Lord. I'm not, this is not a marriage. Anyway, we're going to move on. Here we go. (laughs) I'll tell you what, just stepping back and looking at all that we've just looked at tonight, this is an incredible story, isn't it? I love this story. We have the awesomeness of Boaz. There's my man crush again. We've got the drama of getting his attention. We've got the the wow of his willingness and eagerness to be that protector and provider. It's hands down one of my favorite stories in the Bible. But let me say this, we would be missing the whole story if in Boaz, we did not see Jesus. We'd be missing the heart of Ruth if we did not understand that behind it all, Jesus is the one in view. Yes, Boaz is a redeemer, but Jesus is the redeemer par excellence. Boaz is awesome but Jesus excels him all the more. So would you take a moment and see Jesus, our Redeemer, with me? Here's what I want you to see. Like Boaz, whose name means in strength and who was a Redeemer, Jesus has a name and it means Savior. And he is the truer Redeemer. Like Boaz, who provided for the marginalized of society from his grain stores, Jesus provides for the marginalized of society with his very life. Like Boaz, who welcomed a foreigner into his home and gave her an exalted status, Jesus welcomes us, who were his enemies and outsiders, into his home and gives us the exalted status as his bride. Like Boaz who ensures that his bride is protected from the young men, Jesus declares that he rides a white horse with the sword of his anger to destroy any who would touch his people. Like Boaz, who opens his table to a lowly and outcast woman, Jesus welcomes us into an eternal feast where we can enjoy him forever. Like Boaz, who loved the Lord with all of his heart, 
Jesus loved his father with all of his heart. Wow. (laughs) That one's going to go down in history. Pull it back. Here we go. Remember that he was the exact imprint and nature of his heavenly father, even God himself. Like Boaz, who saw the plight of this suffering woman and knew her story, so Jesus sees you in your sin and suffering and calls out to you and welcomes you and cleanses you and loves every facet of who you are. And lastly, like Boaz, who spreads his wings over Ruth and Naomi in protection and love, so Jesus spreads his righteousness over us in protection and love. Boaz did so much, but Jesus takes it to the next level. Boaz was a man of strength, but Jesus, who had all strength, became weak to the point of death on a cross so that we could be covered by him and hide under the shadow of his wings. What a source of hope. I want to remind you that some of you coming into this weekend were aware of the deep mark of suffering on you. You were handed a name tag this weekend, and it probably read something like Mark or John or Sarah or Heather. Perhaps you wanted to scratch it out and write a different name. Forgotten, lonely, despised, rejected, failure, or perhaps you even like Naomi's, bitter. And even though you might now even be internally wearing those names, I want you to know that your Boaz is on the scene. Come, hide under the shadow of his wings. Take his garments and cover yourself. Allow him to change your name from bitter back to pleasant. Allow him to be the source of your sweetness and joy, even in the midst of your bitterness and death. And he will cover you with his righteousness. I hope you see Jesus, your Redeemer. But let's not just stop there. Let us also respond to him. Because remember, once you've seen a great Redeemer, you risk all to come under him. And so we likewise, if Jesus is great, must risk all to come under his protection. And I'm going to shoot straight. I think this is a message that we as Western Christians need to hear Because I think in many ways, we are what I would call jellyfish Christians. We're said another way, we are often spineless. If you've ever touched a jellyfish, it has some substance. But as soon as you press it on anything, it slides out of the way. You know, people can see that we are Christians, but when something presses up against us, our jelly-like faith just moves around rather than risking to stand with him. You know, we say we love Jesus, but when a neighbor or a classmate declares to us, well, you have your way to heaven and I have mine, we just nod approvingly. See, our jelly-like faith just slides past that obstacle rather than lovingly declaring to them that Jesus alone is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father, but through him. We love Jesus. We worship him with our arms raised. But when he demands that we give it all to follow him, perhaps that lucrative career, perhaps that significant other, perhaps your family or your hometown that you hold dear, all of a sudden our devotion caves and we slide by the obstacle saying, Jesus must just be speaking in hyperbole rather than meet the real intangible sacrifice of following him. We love Jesus. We call him Lord. But when our biblical ethics are outside the cultural norm, our jelly-like faith just slides past the difficult phrases without even a word of disagreement or tender correction. We let phrases like, love is love, my body, my choice, or walk as free people go by without inviting the one speaking them to a loving and thoughtful look at Jesus and God's word on the matter. We love Jesus and we say that all nations will worship him and yet time and time again, 
when we see countless around us who do not confess the name of Christ, our jelly-like Christianity remains silent for the simple fear that our conversation might be awkward. Friends, I hope you see tonight the backbone of these women, Naomi and Ruth, and they were only looking at a very imperfect Savior in Boaz. How much more, as we behold the perfect and true Redeemer in Jesus, ought we to take risks for our King and add some backbone to our faith? Listen to how David Platt puts it. He says this, This is the picture of Jesus in the gospel. He is something, someone worthy of losing everything for. When we really believe this, then risking everything we are and everything we have to know and to obey Christ is no longer a matter of sacrifice. It's just common sense. To let go of the pursuits, possessions, pleasures, safety, and security of this world in order to follow Jesus wherever he leads, no matter what it costs, is not sacrificial as much as it is smart. And in the words of Jim Elliott, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Let's risk it all for the Redeemer of Redeemers. Friends, as we close tonight, we have a Redeemer beyond compare. And when we see such an amazing Redeemer, let us have hope. Let your name be turned from bitter back to sweet. And let us rejoice in hope. And then let us risk it all to come under the shadow of his wing. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Let's pray. Jesus, we delight in you as our Redeemer. We thank you that you have come and you have rescued and you have covered us under the shadow of your wing. Lord, we love to hide underneath you. We love to be covered by your righteousness. Lord, I pray that we would take every risk, every gamble that is required in order to come under you. Would we forsake it all so that we can have it all? We ask this in your name. Amen.